0: Hello. What was that
1: noise? This is my explosion sound that I have to do when playing with my child. Hello
0: and welcome to the Plants of the Pets podcast. I'm Tegan. That's Joram. He makes sounds.
1: Hi, I'm Joram. I make sounds.
0: How's it going, Yoram?
1: I'm good. That I was might very be Australian of me. I'm, I might be very tired from um, a long day of dealing with kids, but apart from that, I'm very good. I... Oh, wait,
0: before when you asked me, before we recorded, when you asked me, like, if I had a long day, did you actually just say I had a long day and I just assumed it was a question no, no. to me? No, no,
1: no. Okay. <laughs> I, I asked you if you had a long day because you uh, arrived late to the recording and were busy and I before.
0: did not ask the question back. <laughs> I
1: mean, that's fine. It's, it's, I'm, I'm used it's to like... that by now. Like, I will just then steer the conversation I can, so I can complain uh, by myself about things that went well or didn't go well.
0: Yeah, usually we try to um, get the the complaining happening before we start recording, but not this week. (laughs) Dear listeners, you're very, very lucky that you get to hear it too. No,
1: I I don't want to really complain. Um, I, yeah, I'm I'm good. Um, I went to the zoo and... I felt conflicted about the zoo and I wanted to know how you feel about the zoo. I think we talked about zoos in the past, but I haven't yeah. been to one really, I think, in 20 years. You and went to the Berlin one. I went to Berlin one and it changed so much since I was there as a child. When I, I was there, when I was um, a kid myself, uh, pretty much all of the cages were little like metal cages with bars or, or um, grates.
0: Oh, now they're all islands right it's kind of like islands
1: and and uh, glass windows uh like glass barriers okay. and that makes it all seem much more modern and nicer um and i think they got rid of some animals I, I it felt less crowded because i remember like the zoo was very packed with very sad animals and now it didn't feel as packed with as sad animals which was um, the
0: animals were also less sad that's that's <laughs> good i guess
1: I think so I mean some of them seemed happy some of them seemed like I mean I've I've seen the pandas they they build like this whole section for pandas oh and, they
0: have pandas now And
1: we, That's we've, nice we've, we've slandered pandas in the past and there was similar because they were literally just lying a- about sleeping and they, they told us they had a little guide thing there uh, when we arrived and they told us that when pandas fall asleep it's impossible to wake them up so they had to do something like a medical exam to one panda in like in the back and then the panda fell asleep in the back. And so it's still in the back where they do the medical exams because they can't wake up the panda because when the panda is sleeping, it's as it's as if it's dead. And they have to wait until it, it wakes up by itself and then it can walk back to its cage or its, like, uh, outside enclosure. But um, so, yeah, they said, like, yeah, they, one, one of the, I think, I don't know, they have, like, four or something. And I said, like, one of the four is sleeping somewhere in the in the interior tracks because they it, it fell asleep there and it won't come out until it wakes up by itself.
0: That definitely sounds like they're lying. They've lost one of the pandas for sure, and they just don't want to tell anyone. <laughs> they're just like switching them out and hoping that nobody realizes.
1: I think they're under very close surveillance. I mean, you know that the pandas in the Berlin Zoo all belong to the Chinese government. All pandas do. They have literally in, a, in the entire enclosure, there's cameras everywhere. And I imagine that they are linked. Like they, they, they have a link to the owners. And yeah, yeah. Um, they. I really
0: love this fact about pandas, and I think Australia should do that with koalas. Like, I think we've missed an opportunity here. I think it's
1: it's brilliant. I mean... <laughs> What I found weird is that the, the pandas have Chinese names um, because they are Chinese property. And they the names weren't too complicated to pronounce, but still they gave them like German names on top of that. So the German visitors
0: <laughs>
1: could, could take to the two panda babies that they can address them with like German names,
0: which I <laughs> found really weird. What is the Chinese name remember, of one of the like, pandas? L-
1: let, let me look um, it up.
0: They often have quite cute names, like repetitive names that are quite like yeah, exactly. The
1: The guide... Uh, didn't have a problem pronouncing these names and uh, it's Meng Zhang and Meng Wan. <laughs> but we call them Hans and Georg. <laughs> yeah, and there was like, I think Ben and Billy or something like this. These uh, are also
0: not German names.
1: <laughs> right, let me see if I can find what they are. I don't think they like publicly announced the unofficial names. Like, and yeah, the mother is called Meng Meng and I think even the mother has a different name. And these are na- names that could be absolutely pronounced by Germans. But being us, we're like, no, Like, they they are in a Berlin Zoo, they get Berlin names.
0: Um, I, I haven't been to a zoo for a long time. I think I would go and see pandas, though, to be honest i mean it's 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 what we've talked about before there there's some good there's some bad i don't know i don't know how it weighs up on whose side it who wins in the end
1: yeah yeah i tried to look up some studies because i think i've read in the past about the efficiency of the conservation efforts of zoos and i couldn't really find any like good solid conclusive study and so it ends up being a thing where some ngos and some uh, scientists say it's really good and some other ngos and some other people say it's really bad and so it's really there's probably some truth in the middle there they probably do have some benefit for some animals and for other animals that maybe are not endangered it's a bit more cruel to also have them in cages because there is no sort of protection protective need to do that but then again this is what how you get then people to to go to the zoo and and get excited so yeah but uh, for my kid my kid loved um, the playground the most
0: yeah so that's also my my feeling my one of our other friends took her kid to the zoo they had this like yearly pass, and the kid just always wanted to look at the chickens <laughs> it was just like <laughs> this is really just your kid not caring how you spend your money at this point like
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i found it uh, the, the the names now it's Pitt and paula are the german names for Paola. these Pitt and paula so yeah what have you been doing
0: Ah, uh, nothing much. we had We had like a random extra day because of the 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 death of the queen um on Monday. So we had like a bank holiday or like a public holiday. Did just- you queue? Um, We kind of went to the park at the end of the queue to go and try to look at the queue. But then it was actually quite well organized. They wouldn't let us just like, I had this idea that I would just be able to like go to the end and like quietly like walk along the queue and sort of like watch everybody in the queue. But they did not allow that to happen. You couldn't go to look at the queue unless you were joining the queue. And we did not want to do that. It was 14 hours long. So all we saw was like people running towards the queue as we walked away from the park because it was Sunday afternoon evening at like 6pm and the queue was 14 hours long and they knew that it was going to close early on Monday morning to start the actual funeral procession so people were like literally running with like bags and stuff to try and get into like the queue and there was like camera queues looking for the last person to join the queue and do you yeah know that's how beautiful.
1: The, do you know how the logistics work? If, if a person is for 14 hours in a queue how do they, they go to the bathroom? S- to, how do they get food? How do they keep warm?
0: They had everything set up like people were supposed to bring food and drinks but they had like tons of porta potties along the way they had like you know hundreds of volunteers from like the the ambulance the the first day they had all this kind of stuff but yeah you should people should bring suitable clothing and and water and food and I think in in the early times at least they weren't doing that so I think the first people to join the queue they were not being very careful and there was like some faintings and stuff like that but I think it got quite well informed. I mean, there was just like, there was a YouTube channel which was just reporting on where the queue ended. Um, It had this like, what three words, this way of like localizing Mm -hmm. the end of the queue at the start. I mean, by a few, like a day in, it was ending at the end. So they had to even close the queue because it was at capacity. Um, But like they had a lot of information constantly going, I guess, yeah. People are really into it. Um, It was kind of a weird one because it was a a public holiday, but public holidays here, things don't usually shut down that much. I mean, they shut down a bit, but it's more like a Sunday, which for us actually means the shops are still open, just like limited trading hours and things basically run. But this was kind of like Christmas level or even more so, like everything was closed, like the gyms were all closed, like some cultural things were closed. So it was actually one of those days where there was not much to do because Mm -hmm. the country literally went into mourning, which I, again, interesting, like... It's a historical event, but very strange. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. <laughs> Shall we talk about some plants?
1: Let's let's do that. Um, do we want to go first? Do you have something? Do you have a plant that you are that you call your favorite this week?
0: Actually, before we go into any of that, there was something kind of a momentous event that happened last Thursday on September the fifteenth, which was that they announced the winners of the thirty second annual Ig Nobel Prizes. Oh, I
1: completely missed that.
0: Usually, Yoram is very fast on the uptake. I only saw this because I think the Nature Briefing had a mention of the Nobel Prize in Engineering, which was an investigation into how many fingers are needed to effectively turn a doorknob, which depends also on the size of the doorknob. Um, The ones that are more relevant to us maybe as sort of plant scientists, is the biology one. Mm -hmm. So that went to two people who looked at the how and whether or not constipation affects the ability for scorpions to get laid. So well done to them. Um, Another one that sort of relates to us is sort of the literature one, which was an analysis of what makes legal documents specifically unnecessarily difficult to understand. Um, And what's another one? Oh, physics was also sort of biology this year, and it was an investigation into understanding how ducklings swim in formation so as always lots of fun things going on there (laughs) oh actually no one more that i really liked um peace so they were developing an algorithm to help gossipers decide when to tell the truth and when to lie
1: (laughs) yeah i completely missed that i'm just like browsing the the website now uh with the with the announcements of the winners um it's usually great fun to look through that. And I also like that they always, like, you. You, whenever you summarize these concepts, they sound ridiculous. But they always have, like, proper journal titles because it's, like, published research. And it sounds from, like, the whole jargon and the lingo. It sounds very, very scientific. But it's, it is about something a little bit ridiculous, which makes it so much more fun.
0: Oh, there is actually one other one. It's the economics one, which explains mathematically why success most often goes not to the most talented people, but instead to the luckiest. And that <laughs> seems to be, I, I couldn't see that that was actually published Is an archive paper, so a preprint, but I can't see that it's been peer reviewed yet. But yeah, that's fun.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just, although it, it might be advances in complex systems, uh, open access I'm not 100% sure uh, if that's a preprint or if that is a fully, like, reviewed paper.
0: Ah, you're right. There it is. Yeah, yeah. I had a link to the preprint, but I think you're right.
1: yeah. So it's it's like it's out there. It's it's not in a journal that I know, but I mean that would be unlikely in, in econo- uh, economic studies. Is so far away from what I do um, that I don't know the journals there at all. But it absolutely fits my own narrative of luck being a much more important driver for personal career than talent or uh, hard work, and. You think yeah, Europe I will. Was... I will. I will like use that and cite that a lot from now on, and be like, maybe I will even read the study, but probably I will mostly cite it, and say, see, it has been studied. <laughs> Luck is the the driving factor.
0: Okay, shall we talk about some plants?
1: Yes, uh, I have uh, a favorite plant.
0: favorite plant.
1: And I want to talk about Rhizophora uh, mucronata. Um do you have an idea what that is just by pure chance? Again, um I think it's very unlikely that just from the Latin name you know what it is unless you have encountered it already.
0: I I know what type of plant it is.
1: What is <laughs> it? mangrove yes it is a mangrove and it's a mangrove growing in kenya and there it has become a very important plant for the local communities uh but just like to sort of reiterate what mangroves are there are these these um trees that grow in coastal waters so they grow in salt water and therefore they have some adaptive strategies to deal with salt water so first of all they're always uh, with the the tide they are sometimes submerged in water and sometimes they they lay bare and therefore they have these sort of supportive um, structures Uh, from their roots that keep the whole like most of the plant above the water level and then the roots have special um, properties that they can take in air when they are not submerged in water and then they close off and have air uh, stored in the roots and then when the water comes the they don't drown the roots can still breathe because they have their own uh, air already stored there and then they also have adaptive traits to deal with the salt water and they are very important for the ecosystems, um, and this is not particular to this this specific species, but to all mangroves. That they break down the force of the waves, and they provide habitat. This, hmm?
0: Yeah, they stabilize coastlines a lot, and yeah, they're these really important, like sort of in between land for habitats, and then they also like fix a lot of carbon. So there's a lot of discussions now about you know restoring and planting more mangroves. For that,
1: yeah, and this is exactly the story that I found here, dealing about how understanding that property of mangroves helped the local communities to use them uh, as a source of income. These mangrove forests. So what they do is that they started protecting them already in 2016. There was a large. Uh, change in legislation to protect these mangrove trees because under colonial times they were massively cut down by the British and then uh, that sort of that trend continued that they were so- used for for wood and were harvested and not protected. But that changed then in 2016.
0: Sorry, what what, what area of the world are we in? in Where are Kenya?
1: We? Okay, and in. Now they protect these mangrove forests and have specific programs in place to also grow new mangroves and, um, uh, and plant them. Uh, it still means, like, overall, they're still losing a, a bit less than a percent of mangroves every year. So they're not yet at the stage where they can actually increase the amount of mangroves, but they massively slowed down the cutting of these mangroves. Um, which is really important because, yeah, as you said, like they they con- they provide habitat for animals, like fishes, for example, and then stabi- stabilizing the mangrove population also stabilizes the fish population, which is then important for the fisheries and to provide food for the people. And on top of that, what they're doing now is uh, um, selling carbon offsets, um, uh, like tickets or like points to to larger companies and by that creating an income that they can then use to further protect the mangroves and that apparently works quite well uh, quite well for them, Um, they selling I think about like for around 9000 tons of uh, carbon dioxide emissions they're selling uh, offset uh, points. And uh, to do that, they like every year they go out, I think, twice and measure the mangrove biomass. And based on that, they calculate the stored carbon and then they sell these carbon credits uh, and get an income from that. And this is one of the cases where I think these carbon credits actually work as, as a way to fund the local protection activities. So that's why I find, found this quite interesting, quite, quite cool. Um, but overall, while talking about carbon uh, um, carbon offsets or these carbon credits, uh, there has been recently, I think two or three weeks ago, a last week tonight episode just about carbon offsets, talking about also the pitfalls of this strategy where more and more companies are saying they have a carbon neutral production. And what they're doing is they emit just as much carbon dioxide as before, but they're now paying some money to sur- some projects. And sometimes like in, for the mangroves, these are projects that actually help in the protection of certain trees or, or um, carbon storages. But in many other cases, uh, these are much less precise and much more scammy or much more vague about the actual protection that they're doing.
0: And it's it's also somehow beside the point because you should, no matter what, be trying to reduce that. You should yeah. be reducing by actual efforts to reduce, not just buying your way out of the problem effectively.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I didn't know that mangroves had this um this role in in carbon offsets um, uh, trading and also for like the local, uh, for the local environment. Uh, but yeah, I also wanted to share the the thing to to last week tonight because I thought that was really interesting because I've seen like i like now I looked at my my products that I buy and I have like chocolate that's carbon neutral. I have some like plant milks that are carbon neutral and some other things. And I know like whenever they just say carbon neutral, I know that it's based on carbon offset. And I know that carbon offset is not like a perfect wonderful cure it's something uh, that has to be scrutinized quite quite uh, intensely
0: i have my own favorite plant am i allowed to do a favorite plant as well
1: yeah of course
0: obviously yeah you're gonna have to (laughs) replay the the theme tune
1: (laughs) we're doing it um like endorse horse rules whenever we need it we play the (laughs) jingle my
0: favorite plant In case any of you wanted to hear the jingle again So I also have a favourite plant this week And it was actually sent to me by one of my close friends Who is holidaying on an island somewhere And she came across this very weird tree in a botanical garden there And it is called a jabuticaba Mm -hmm. So Yoram, I'm going to give you a second to try to Google this To have a look at it And maybe you can describe what it is you see
1: it looks otherworldly. It's it's a tree that's covered in these black round shiny balls. it is apparently it's fruit, but you could see that in like an alien movie where this is how the aliens grow or take over nature, and then they they spawn emits from these little black berries. But apparently, yeah, this yeah. is like it's it's like. The size is hard to estimate here, but maybe like grape or plum-sized black fruit...
0: Yeah, I think a small plum or like a large marble and very dark. But the weird thing that's happening here is they're not growing sort of off sort of fruit bunches. They're growing directly on the trunk of the tree. Yeah. And this is one of those ones where maybe you don't want to Google it if you have some sort of queasiness because it really looks like <laughs> the trunks of the trees are being infested by giant black bugs or some sort of like slimy mold thing that's crawling everywhere. It looks quite off-putting, I would say. And like generally speaking, it just seems a little bit weird that all of these fruits are growing on the tree. So she showed me just a picture of these plants and was like, what the hell is happening here? And I've looked into it just looking at the Wikipedia article. And it's something that originally is found in South America. It's native to Brazil, but it can also be found in Argentina, Paraguay, Peru, and Bolivia. Um, A little bit more about the Brazil later on. Um, but it's it's eaten so it makes these purpley fruits that can be processed they can be eaten raw but they can also be used to make jellies or jams as well as sort of juiced and made into juice but also into wine and as we mentioned the weird thing is that it makes these purplish black fruits that grow directly on the trunk of the tree the name of the <laughs> the fruit Jabu, Jabuticaba Kaba comes from a, a Tupi word originally. So this is like an extinct language that was taught, um, spoken by the indigenous people, um, the Tupi people in Brazil. But apparently Djibouti means tortoise <laughs> and mm-hmm. Kaba means place. But it's not about the fruits looking tortoise-like. It's just the place where the tortoises are found. And that's where... Um, the 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 fruits were found although some other people think that the the center of the the fleshiness the pulp of the fruit looks like turtle fat and maybe that's where it came from but Mm -hmm. in any case um the the other word um the other name for it is yavar puru and that's kind of onomatopoeic so like when you eat them it makes a like puru puru (laughs) sounds like when you crunch on the on the fruit so (laughs) Yeah, that's quite nice. I think my favorite thing about this that I could see is that it's sort of been eaten for a while. It's not really commercial, but it's, you know, sort of been found and 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 used, but it's got a a link to sort of common culture or slang where to call something jabuticaba is described in Brazilian politics as something that's absurd, unusual or needlessly complex and also something that could only exist in a country like Brazil and this sort of relates back to the tree itself and this idea that they can also you'd only find something like that in Brazil mm-hmm. so definitely go off and look at the Djibouti Kaaba because they are very weird but I do warn you that if you are creeped out by the idea of like beetles maybe if you saw that scene from the mummy when you're a kid where like the scarab beetles crawled up people and then went under their flesh then this is maybe not the one for you.
1: Yeah, I I like that you warned me before I <laughs> search these, that um, so that uh, that you give the the content warning to our listeners, but not to me. <laughs> but I, I yeah, but I'm 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 fine with this kind. Like if it would have been full of holes, then I would have been a bit squeezy about it. But um, just having these these uh, blackberries on it is is fine. Uh, I have a follow up from last week where we said that we wanted to be mosses. Uh, when i don't even remember i think when we just are reborn or if we could like pick a plant that we'd be we'd like to be mosses and now uh science has come a step further to turn humans into moss um which is really not what they've been doing so they've been looking at um plant rna editing um so this is something that specifically plants do where they change mutations or revert mutations in the genetic code back to the original meaning that they require for the protein to work, but they don't do that on a DNA level where you would, like imagine it happening so you have a mutation and then you change the dna and then the mutation is gone but instead what plants have evolved to is do that on the rna level so on the transcript so after the the dna has been read and there's an error in there there's a specific machinery that corrects the error on the transcript and then the correct protein is made and we don't fully understand why it's (laughs) happening like that um they
0: it's very much like we'll fix that in post it's fine we'll fix that in post like
1: and uh, like in the article that I've read they said it's comparing to like if you do um, just like printing of a book with a traditional like printing press and instead of correcting a mistake on the printing plate you correct it in every single book that you're printing and this is what Mm -hmm. plants are doing and we don't really know where it comes from it might just be a sort of a quirk from evolution when plants reached land and they accumulated some more mutations and they had to deal with them and in the beginning they weren't that so they did that in a transcript and then over time it sort of grew and now there's more things that are corrected and um, so the mosses are doing that as as well so here they looked at fiscometrium patterns and specifically at the editing happening in the mitochondria so the mitochondria have their own genome and their own transcription happening there and the transcripts in there are also corrected through RNA editing and now what they did in this study is that they took the entire machinery from the moss and put that in human cell lines to see what would happen. Would that work? And um, unsurprisingly to me, the machinery worked in human cells and did some editing to RNA. Um, a bit more surprisingly also to the researchers was there was much less specific. So in plants, like they literally have like one or two targets per sort of set of Um, molecules involved or proteins involved there so they very specifically only added a specific stretch of uh, RNA but in humans they did hundreds of edits of the RNA uh, and it's, it's unclear why that is it might be a dose effect because in mitochondria you have a much lower number of transcripts and sequences available compared to when you just do it in a complete human cell where you have a much higher number so it's just like a higher chance of randomly editing something. Um, But they hope that they will understand the process of RNA editing better by sort of isolating it from its other players and then figuring out how it decides what to edit and whatnot. And so they've done that before in E. coli, so in a bacterium. And now they've done that in human cell lines. So not really in humans, but in human cell lines. So they made it a little bit more MOS-like by introducing um, (laughs) an editing machinery in there. uh, That's really not it's not changing stuff for the better as of now, but maybe potentially like when, when we understand this better, um, having something that changes RNA could in the far future lead to stuff like, um, genetic treatments for diseases and stuff where we can, instead of changing the DNA of the humans, which has ethical uh, implications, we can just change the transcripts when, um, uh, yeah, when sort of the, the, mutation is then put into, into action.
0: Yeah. So I guess that's the, <laughs> that's the the argument for why this is, is useful. So these are, are proteins that bind to RNA and can then alter the RNA sequence. So that's the kind of downstream application. I'm just wondering, did you come up with that? We're making humans more moss-like spin? Yeah. Or did you read that so <laughs>
1: Amazing That's really not folks, What they want This is why
0: Yoram to. Is a professional Science communicator Because um, That's not That's not the tagline I would have put On this paper But Yeah I mean Basically It's, it's not super unexpected These are proteins That bind RNA yeah. And RNA is not so different, like, between species, so they put it in and they found that it does bind other RNA, like, that's not super unusual or surprising, but still, like, kind of fun and kind of cool, and... (laughs) Yeah, your, your spin <laughs> makes it even more fun and more cool. So well done. <laughs> yeah, I want, I, want,
1: I want to stress you. That's that's really not what they tried to do. They didn't try to make <laughs> like superhumans that have moss abilities. Although, I, what, what is a moss ability? It's like superhumans that like to grow in like s- sort of shady places with lots of humidity. And they take a long time to regenerate if you destroy them. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's really not a superpower that i would want uh, i just want to be a complete moss i don't want to be a human with some moss qualities
0: shady human <laughs> speaking of plants having different processes and things that do different things that we're not really sure what they're doing <laughs> was that a good segue perfect um, I need to talk a little bit about Rubisco again. So Rubisco is this super important enzyme and super abundant enzyme. It's the most abundant enzyme on earth. And it's the guy that's responsible for doing the first step of fixing carbon dioxide into what eventually becomes simple sugars. Um, And people really want to get their hands on Rubisco and engineer it, change it a bit because Rubisco is like perfectly okay, but it's not optimal. And there's this idea that we can make it either faster or better. So like either work more quickly or be a little bit more selective in the way it takes up carbon dioxide. So there's been a lot of research looking into how Rubisco is made. um, And we have to talk a little bit about what Rubisco is physically if we want to do that. So, Joram, what is Rubisco made up of? Do you remember this?
1: Yeah, I remember this. It has one large part and a small part and it's literally called like the large chain and the small chain. Um, and these two parts are then put together in multiples I think of eight? Is that correct? Yes, eight. Yeah, so in you have like, eight, and large algae. Ones, eight large ones and eight small ones and they form together this sort of ring structure where it's just like repeated all yeah. around the ring.
0: Kind of, yeah, kind of a balloon. Like, imagine an yeah. origami balloon that's got eight eight and eight bits. So the, the large subunits that make up, you know, these eight large things, this is actually encoded by a gene that is found in the plastid, the chloroplast genome. Um, and, you know, there's one of that. They're pumping out a ton of these, these large subunits to make Rubisco. But then there's also small subunits, and they're found in the nuclear genome, which makes things a little bit more complicated because they have to be pumped out and then made in the cytosol and then imported into the plastered and then they join up with the large one and then they make Rubisco. What makes things even more complicated is that while there's basically one gene of the large subunit, there's many different genes of the small subunit. So, there can be different numbers of small subunit genes in different species. Arabidopsis, I think, has four of the small subunits. Um, there can be less. Chlamydomonas has two. And some Flavaria have up to 22 different copies of the small subunit of Rubisco. That's a so bit excessive. That's excessive and complicated. You've now got to really control how many of them you make. To make that even more complicated, they're not all exactly the same. Um, So there's differences in (laughs) the different genes, quite small ones. So the four different Arabidopsis small subunit peptides share about 97% sequence similarity, but that's still 3% of differences. Um, and to make things even more complicated than that, there's been a range of different experiments that show that these different genes are actually expressed to different amounts. So different amounts of them are made relative to each other, depending on the environmental parameters. <laughs> so if you put a little bit more light, if you put a little bit more or less CO2, if you change the temperature, you get different relatively relative amounts of these anywhere between 2 and 12, 22 copies. Mm-hmm. So something's going on there. There's some sort of response to environmental and developmental cues. And it's a little bit like the, the RNA editing story. We're not super certain what's happening and why it's happening. So, I mean, it could just be that they have slightly different promoters and, you know, this is a little bit up to chance that these promoters are just responding differently. But it could also have meaning. So that's kind of the big question, like, is is there different meaning? And the thing is, we do know that if we swap out different Rubiscos, we can get... Um different things so if we change the the small subunits from one species and put it into another species or make sort of hybrid rubiscos with like mixes of you know local ones and foreign ones and it it changes the kinetic properties of the rubisco how fast it works and it also changes the stability of the rubisco so there are all these questions
1: (laughs) And isn't it also changing the specificity, specificity of Rubisco for either carbon dioxide or oxygen, where there's this whole like photorespiration issue where it sometimes takes oxygen instead of CO2, and you have sort of different optimizations, evolutionary speaking, of Rubisco. So some, some of it is really fast, but sometimes takes the wrong stuff, and others is very... Sp- Specific, um, but therefore a little bit slower in its kinetics. And I think this also comes down to the composition of the individual, like subunits, right? Like sequence differences. Yes.
0: Yes. So, yeah, so it, it can be down to that. As I said, like the Arabidopsis ones, they're 97% similar, but that differs across species in tomato. There's like 93% only. There was also in one experiment that was done only a couple of years ago where they took tobacco and they made it p- that it could only express one out of the, the multiple different isoforms of the small subunits. So it like sort of silenced all the other ones and only let it make one of them. And that actually increased the the kinetics of um the the revisco by letting it only do this one isoform. So it's it seems quite complicated basically. Mm-hmm. So this is a paper that is coming has come out recently in JXB. It's by Kavanaugh and colleagues. And it's looking at some of these temperature-induced changes in Arabidopsis rubisco activity and isoform expression. I just read out the title of the paper then. Um, <laughs> but basically, they follow on from previous research that looks more at the, the level of gene expression at at the transcript level so genes making the rna the transcripts now they're looking at the actual expression of the proteins and seeing how much of the protein is formed for these four different subunits um small subunits of rubisco in a labidopsis and they're doing this when they grow their plants at different temperatures so they tried 10 degrees celsius and 30 degrees celsius and they found a pretty dramatic change in isoform. So they found that under um, the warm temperatures, so 30 degrees, 65% of the total pool was the B type of the small subunit. But then when you switch that down to cool, the A type subunit suddenly dominated. And that was, again, 65% in, in the cool conditions. So that's fine, but then they took it one step further and they showed that the switches in the different relative concentrations of the isoforms actually led to kinetic changes in Rubisco. Um, they did this in vitro, um, but they showed that the warm-grown plants have Rubisco with more CO2 affinity, so they're, they're more likely to recognize CO2, um, but they have a lower catalytic activity Um mm-hmm and yeah they also looked at sort of like the overall amount of rubisco and they found that like on a leaf area basis the warm grown plants had less rubisco about 40% less but they can still have the same um, rate of photosynthesis as the cold plants at sort of like the ambient co2 Mm. so they're getting more information about how these things might be working and maybe there's some clues here that they're sort of working to buffer the the plant so that it sort of maintains a steady rate of photosynthesis with some flexibility as conditions change
1: yeah interesting um do you know like how hot these hot temperatures were were they so hot that they would close the stomata and reduce the gas exchange and therefore anyway sort of reduce the the amount of carbon dioxide they could get into the cell and therefore it's it's worth to have something that's a little bit slower on the rubisco and and a bit, little bit more specific because anyway you can't douse it with co two.
0: I know that so the the actual um, measurement of the activity were done in vitro so that's not inside the plant, um, so that's kind of looking at the actual properties of the enzyme rather than yeah. um, it's it's like literal activity inside the plant and I'm not sure how that worked as far i'm also not sure if they have images i'm just having a quick look in the paper i'm not sure if they showed sort of how well things are growing or that also depends on yeah a lot of other factors
1: but yeah 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 but it's it's really interesting that they use this route to fine-tune the rate of photosynthesis or the rate of carbon fixation really um by changing the composition of the Rubiscos that I have hanging around uh, based from like the large catalog. I I imagine like the, the plant is like a sneaker head that before going out uh, and just pay, putting on like the everyday sneaker, they select like the specific sneaker for the occasion. And this is how the plant chooses the specific RBCS or the short um, Rubisco protein uh, for the temperature and other conditions. And then just like puts that on. It's like, yeah, this, this fits perfectly now from my... What was it, twenty-two different types of that one gene?
0: For the Flavaria only. For uh for this, it's only four, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think I mean it it's it's quite it's quite slow as a response. I mean, you're going all the way back to expressing the gene and making everything new. So it's not like it's it's not responding to sort of daily fluctuations. It seems I mean, maybe daily, but that seems i don't know actually yeah i actually don't know the
1: turnover of rubisco like i don't know how often it is it has to be replenished um it's
0: just so it's so much energy to make rubisco right it's just such yeah i'm i yeah we should we should look into that
1: (laughs) yeah let's let's leave the realm of speculation here but i think it's uh it's really cool that they um yeah to think about this this way of regulating it and of this way of, of this function of having all of these different genes uh, on on site from having four different genes to having four different crops in the same plot i found well a story done, Yar. <laughs> i found a story about uh, looking at what happens when you do intercropping so intercropping oh, is yeah. a practice instead of monoculture crop cropping where you have just only maize or only wheat or whatever on your field you mix them together and it goes back to like traditional farming practices something we talked about as well like uh, northern american indigenous people were growing um squash and corn and i forgot the third one
0: some sort of peas i think some legume
1: yeah, some legume together. Um, and they were mutually beneficial to each other. And, and so they would have a higher yield than if they would grow them as monocultures. So this so idea is, is not new.
0: Yeah, the idea is that it's it's got multiple benefits, right? So yeah, ideally the plants should help each other out. So you know maybe if you have a pea, it's it's providing nitrogen, but also they can help shade each other and they can be you know generally beneficial to each other. But there's also this like biodiversity benefit, and there's supposed to be like multiple benefits from intercropping, ideally.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and so now in this study, they they looked at what happens when you take crops that are traditionally grown as monocultures and you grow them as a. Uh, with intercropping so um with multiple mixed together and they mixed either two or four uh, different species together and they used um wheat oat lentil flax camellia camellina and coriander in in small pots and then they had like they did sort of a combinatorial um, mix up there 13 different combinations um and see what would happen to these plants and so every year they would take the seeds from the, the generation and regrow it then the next year and they did that for three years which is not a lot um, but they did that for three years and they found that plants very quickly adapted their strategy from com- uh, competition to cooperation so they would grow like adapt to one another and grow well together But they didn't have a big yield plus. So only when they would add additional fertilizer to the plots, they would actually get more biomass and more yield of the different plants. So it wasn't like an immediate success where you say, okay, they they are so beneficial to one another that they immediately boost the productivity. That didn't happen. But they could show that there is some adaptation going on already. Like even in uh, very sort of high-performance crops that have been bred forever to be monocultures, they can within three generations start to adapt to one another. And they also say that this is a very short experiment for this sort of thing. So looking at more generations could see could lead to uh, more adaptation of these crops to one another and and really bringing out uh, mutual benefits. Um, yeah, and so it's like it's. It's not a very uh, huge story, but I found it uh, interesting to see that even in three generations, they could already see some adaptive traits of these plants and and changing to this cooperative mode, which brings me to like something I heard like in in a, in a German podcast about complexity research where they talked about how... Um, for a long time with darwin's evolutionary theory we were thinking about competition happening in nature all the time so like the the main driver driving force for evolution is competition but now we Mm -hmm. find more and more cases where cooperation is what's happening in ecosystems from like mutual like symbiosis with uh, soil fungi with with plants or like even on a larger scale with um, certain animals that that live together and can only coexist to gut microbiomes uh, microbiomes that can only like where the the microbes in the gut can only exist because of the host and the host can only exist because of the microbes and that's not a like evolution of competition but an evolution of collaboration and that's something that i sort of found like that that i read in in this little study here and i quite like that that um that cooperative behavior mm. gets more attention um these days and so yeah, so maybe in with, with more generations, we can have better adapted crops that can actually grow together. But it like, obviously requires much more change to agricultural systems than just growing them together. But uh, yeah, that's a little story that I found.
0: Seeing as we're on the topic of crops, Joram, if you had to imagine one of the earlier crops but kind of an obscure one. How do I say this? What's what's the sort of obscure fruit that is also that can be dated back to Egypt, so far back that there are images of this crop sort of being displayed for eating in in the tombs in ancient Egypt?
1: I mean, I I only remember the 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 book that we read uh, that was talking about like once millet but also apples. The apples are this ancient crop that's been oh, around forever. It's a little forever. bit
0: more exotic than that. See, I yeah, think millet would be like an obvious guess, but this is something like a much more exciting fruit.
1: I, I don't know. Like I, I would find uh, passion fruit or papaya exciting, but I think these are not, not native to North Africa.
0: Yeah, it's something kind of close. It's actually watermelons, which they do oh. think were domesticated in um, North Africa in that region. So... I found a New Scientist article that's a little bit old, it's from 2019 and they're discussing the fact that there are these iconographs from Egyptian tombs that clearly show watermelons, like it's got this kind of watermelon shape and it's got these green and sort of white stripy bits and it's pretty clear from these drawings that the watermelons are around and also that they're being eaten. And this is sort of like 3,500 years old, I think. So this really suggests that farmers were sort of breeding and probably, you know, eating potentially sweet watermelons at that time. Mm-hmm. So one of the, the weird things about this is that in the 19th century, they actually found watermelon leaves inside a mummy's tomb that dated back from this period. So 3,500 years old, and now there's leaves. And this got sent um, to somebody who at the time was the head of Kew Gardens, so it's Joseph Hooker who was a quite famous botan- botanist and these these melon leaves were kept by Kew Gardens for a long time. And the article The New Scientist is actually reporting on a paper, a preprint that was stored in BioArchive and the preprint is called A 3,500 year old leaf from a pharaonic tomb reveals that New Kingdom Egyptians were cultivating domesticated watermelon. So, this basically says that we knew that domesticated watermelon, which is Citrullus lanatus was probably found somewhere in Africa either South Africa or the Nile region um, or maybe like West Africa where there's sort of archaeological evidence that puts it there Um, and here they sort of looked at this really old leaf part that they actually got from inside the sarcophagus of a mummy and they were doing some DNA sequencing looking at the nuclear and the plaster genomes and using this they were able to show some important things. The first was that these plants seem to have mutations in a lycopene metabolism gene and that's important because the lycopene um, is related to the colouring of the fruit. So this suggests that these plants that the leaves come from were producing fruit that had the pink colouring instead mm-hmm. of the the older would have sort of a yellow or, like, you know, a, a greeny-yellow colour. Nothing so exciting. So the first thing sort of suggests that they had red flesh. And then the second and perhaps much more important thing is that they had a stop codon in a gene, like an early stop that prevented the transcription of a gene that should um, make bitter corcobutacin compounds and these curcobitasins are basically these secondary metabolites that the plants produce to prevent themselves from being eaten by things that aren't supposed to eat them including humans so what's important is that this has got some sort of mutation which means that it can't make these bitter compounds which means that the watermelons that were found in the tube or the the leaves of the watermelon are linked to plants that are probably pink and probably um tasty So, I can't see any evidence that this paper, in its sort of in its situation that it's it's seen on the archive, got printed. But there is a new article that has come out at the end of July this year in um, Molecular Biology and Evolution, which is an Oxford Academic journal. And in that paper, they have sequenced seeds from sort of a watermelon family plant that go back six thousand years. Um, And these seeds come from Libya, as well as from the Sudan. And they compare the 6,000-year-old seeds with these 3,000-year-old leaf data. And they also use sort of new accessions of watermelons. They do almost like this metagenome, looking at all these different types of modern watermelons. But then they also link that back to these older types of melons. And they were trying to work out if the the oldest, the 6,000-year-old samples for which they had the seeds were also these tasty edible types of melon. And what they did find is that, in fact, the old ones, they still had bitter pulp and they still had this kind of green-white flesh. And they were probably a different species and sort of were not collected and eaten for the fruit. But what that leads them to believe is that before we were eating watermelons of fruit, we were eating the the watermelon seeds, which mm. were sort of a bit like pumpkin seeds. And this is supported by the idea that the samples of these old seeds that they had from um, Libya and Sudan actually had some teeth marks on them.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it, it it makes me think about like nowadays we hate it when there are seeds in our watermelon and to me the the seeds of the watermelon are a nuisance and not a part of that's that's interesting in the fruit but if like it makes me wonder if it would be worthwhile to breed like the watermelons for their seeds and and eat those just like we have it like like pumpkin seeds i quite like pumpkin seeds or sunflower seeds and stuff like that um
0: I guess r- realistically we just have better things to eat that's the yeah I mean it's just not nutritional as it's 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 worth eating if you can't find anything else but it's probably not
1: yeah it's 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 probably not the the most efficient crop um and the, the best food source that we have but yeah I I didn't think of watermelons as having this this quality it's really it's really interesting
0: Anyway, if you want to read more about this story, it's really, there's a blog post on the Kew Gardens website that we're going to link to. Um, it's a really nice sort of summary of looking at these super old samples and the fact that they were able to carbon date the samples, which is impressive. And then they also have a photo of these little melons, the old ones, which are you Ugu- Eguzi watermelons um, on the, the website as well. So go and check that out.
1: As a sort of transition um, fact into our cat fact, in the end, uh, I have something that's related to some animals, uh, and it also answers a question that I that I didn't really have like present, but then thinking about it, it was something that I wondered before: is why do we why do flowers when they differentiate themselves? Why don't they go through sort of all hues and shades of different colors to attract certain pollinators? Why you see so many like there are many yellow flowers that pretty much have the same shade of yellow, or the same shade of pink, or a very similar shade of a purple uh, that you that you find on different species. Um, and one answer could be that bees um, as as pollinators don't really care that much for color and they more care for the combination of color and pattern. And so for a plant, it's more useful to evolve into a different pattern of flower shape and plant shape so that when the bees come, they present a different pattern to them and then make themselves recognizable based on that as to changing the hue of the color of the the flowers because that's less interesting to the bees. Uh, or maybe, I mean, yeah, this is sort of the, the way looking, coming from the bees. I mean, of, obviously, they, they co-evolve together. But bees have this, like, very bad eyesight. They, the, the resolution that they have is much worse than, for example, we have. So any f- specific details of, of um, color of the flower, they uh-huh. can only see okay. when they're very close by. But from f- further distance, it's the pattern that they see that, the f- that for them tells them what kind of plant that is that they're approaching.
0: Okay, because we have we've argued before that bees do like blue, so we know that they like blue colors. But you're you're saying that their ability to differentiate between different shades within the colors is is pretty crappy.
1: Yeah, and, and also like the, the the spatial resolution of of their of their sight is, isn't that great. So um, that means that they 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 in the paper they had of, sort of a hexagonal grid that the bees see. Um, and based on the pattern that the flower or like a plant has within that grid, this is what tells the, the bee what kind of plant that is and differentiates it between different things. So in that study, they, they presented the bees with um, artificial patterns and um, tried to see if the bees react more, if they change if they change the colors in the pattern or if they change the shape of the pattern. And apparently the pattern was more important than the color. It d- doesn't mean that the color is not at all important. But um, the pattern plays a much larger role than what we thought before. And especially things like the contrast between the flower and the surrounding foliage that had a big effect on the pattern recognition for the bees. Um, so while we like to look at, at uh, pretty colors, the bees pre- like to look at pretty patterns and colors together to identify plants and then choose them for pollination. And
0: is is that specific for bees? So were they testing one specific they, species? Based on the summary that I've,
1: that I've read, they are thinking that this could extend to other pollinators as well. And this could help us to understand pollinator decision-making and help us to guide pollinators to certain areas if uh, by knowing that. Um, but the study was done just in bees. So... Um, it's sort of extrapolated from that to to other pollinators and this like the the paper is very like model heavy and math heavy um so i didn't understand all of it uh, at all but they um <laughs> uh, they have some images that sort of indicate the the bee vision and what they actually perceive from flowers
0: oh i'm just looking at the paper now they have um <laughs> their, their work involves training bees mm-hmm they get 10 trials to choose the cert- the right choice and then they get some sort of reward. Wow, cool. Yeah. Um. Before we do the cat fact, I actually have one callback as well that I want to mention. So last week, Yoram was talking all about ferns because he had seen a couple of big fern stories that came through in the journal <laughs> Nature Plants. And I just wanted to mention that another one of the nature research journals has... Ferns as their cover of their journal. And it's not the one you would guess. It's actually Nature Geoscience, which is involved with all things related to the earth and rocks. And their editorial is actually entitled Plants Rooted in Rocks. And it's about this sort of intimate, entwined relationship between rocks in forming plants and plants in forming rocks. Um, so they mentioned in the editorial the fact that although plants only came to land pretty late um, in (laughs) geological time. Um, So only 480 million years ago. They nonetheless have done quite a lot when it comes to shaping the Earth. So there's a paper from a few years back that shows that the advent of land plant actually increased weathering of rocks by a factor of two to ten, silicate weathering specifically. Um, And also, you know, obviously plants are changing the air around them, the whole like oxygen atmosphere, and that has impacts. And then there's also, of course, the physical interactions. So in the journal, they have two different papers that look at this, um, one of them is this sort of land, emergence of land plants thing and how that changed the continental crust, which is kind of cool and dramatic sounding. I think a little bit what you'd expect sort of it has this change in the complexity and the stability of the earth systems, because now there's plants that are trying to put their roots into things.
1: There's actually something that I, I learned recently from Hank Green in a in a, in a podcast that a lot of the, the the rocks that we have on earth are influenced by oxygen like a lot of the like minerals have oxygen in them and that's because because of plants there was so much oxygen in the atmosphere that slowly minerals could form that have oxygen in them like uh, yeah i don't, like oxides of of different things and that's why when we look at like space and imagine the minerals that we see on other bodies in space we probably will find much less, like less diverse, chemically speaking, rocks there because they didn't have the the abundance of oxygen that could lead to all of this these weird kinds of like inorganic oxygen-based chemistry happening there that shaped all of the rocks here. So the composition of the rocks on Earth is is largely like or heavily influenced by the oxygen that plants made um, when they when they appeared.
0: Yeah, so even in in the abstract of this paper, it's mentioning how the greening of the continents was recorded in the deep Earth. Um, And here they're linking this to the the shifts in... the the isotopic shift of zircon. So I think similar theme maybe? Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, kind of cool. Anyway, they have that paper and then they also have it from the the other side. Um, they're talking about the vulnerability of forests to drought, which is obviously a really hot topic in the last years. We had like extreme droughts across Europe um, a few years back and now we're just getting continuous droughts across a lot of the world with um, the climate crisis. And here they're linking the fact that it can be quite difficult sometimes to predict the drought effects on forest based just on sort of availability of water you know from rainfall and that um, so they're linking that to the type of um, substrate so the the bedrock basically that the plants are on so sort of another factor involved in how resilient plants are to future drought events
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I feel like the segways are more awkward than usual
1: yeah Maybe I can just like, cut that and just back. straight up to the jingle. I have a very small and a, a bigger fact today. The first one is about the question that we all ask ourselves every morning when we get up is how many ants live on earth. And finally we have an answer and it's 20 quadrillion ants. That's 20,000 million millions. Um, or a 20 with 15 zeros. And this is based on a study where they used literature um, like data from different countries and they they specifically said in the i think in the press release that they also went to non-english speaking publications um so they looked at a number of things that were including like russian mandarin um spanish german and some other languages as well and they integrated all of that data to come up with the number 20 quadrillion ants which is about 20 times larger than what we previously estimated um I just
0: googled, sorry, I just googled now what is an ant, because I, I mean, what is an ant? Is it a species? It's actually a whole family. So yeah, the family has 22,000 species
1: that made it that made it uh, challenging for them, like just Going from the number to the biomass, because they only also wanted to know how much mass is that. And there's like some very small ants and some very big ants. So you can't just, so you have to figure out what is the average size and so on. But they did that. They did some estimates there. And the biomass is around like a fifth of the human biomass. And it's more biomass than all birds and mammals combined. We still uh, outnumber excluding them. We humans. outmass them. Yeah. But still quite a lot of ants. So that's just the number that you can now. In the morning, you can just answer to yourself, it's 20 quadrillion. Um, The other study that I found, I find a bit more um, uh, interesting or more more fun is that they put dogs in an MRI machine and then had them watch movies and then scanned their brains while they're watching movies. And then they had an artificial intelligence looking at the images that were made by the MRI machine and then by some artificial intelligence magic, um, they could link... The, the content of the video that was um, described before with um, names of things that you see and actions that you see with timestamps. And then they couldn't link that back to the brain. So they also had humans do this, watch the same movies and then the dogs. And then the AI is like something that was known before that was trained on humans. And there they had a very good mapping of like finding the 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 things and the actions that you see in the video represented mapping back to the brain somehow and like you can tell that i have like plants don't have brains so i have no <laughs> idea about pra- uh, brain biology yeah yeah
0: that's why that's why
1: um but they found that uh, like in humans we care very much about the identity of things That's why we have i think there's like 20 times more, or even higher number, uh, we have more words for things than we have for actions. Because, like, the identity of things is very important to us as humans. So, nouns more than verbs. Uh, and in the dogs, they found that the actions were more important. For the, So, the movies that they were watching were dog-related content. So, they, they saw dogs interacting, dogs interacting with humans, dogs interacting with toys, dogs sniffing, and dogs running and chasing. And so, they had actions that the dogs were doing and things that the dogs were interacting with. And that's what they were watching. And they found that for the humans, all of the things were interesting and for the dogs, all of the actions were interesting. Okay, but
0: that's not... Sorry, that's not a good control. Were the humans watching humans do things?
1: No, they were watching the same movies. The dog movies.
0: So don't you think it would be better if the humans were watching the humans do things? Because like... If the humans are watching the dogs interacting maybe they just don't really care about the dogs because they don't see themselves in the dogs so they're more interested in yeah. the other things in the scene but the dogs were so self-involved they they put themselves right in the movie with the dog so they felt that they were doing the actions it's not a good controlled experiment I'm sorry
1: <laughs> I mean they they say that it's also they only did that to do two dogs because it's sort of a proof of concept work to show that also the algorithm and everything works with this type of data also they were surprised that they didn't have to restrain the dogs the dogs are quite calm and happy watching the movies without having to like physically (laughs) restrain them and they they said they didn't even have to give them snacks to keep them happy they were just like sitting there and I think it was like 30 minute movies and they watched like three 30 minute movies with a break in between Um, and the dogs were very happy with that the two dogs that they had and um, Sorry, obviously, for I, can't, any,
0: I can't watch a single thirty-minute movie without looking at my phone for half of the movie. How does the dog keep watching the movie for the, thirty
1: minutes? It was just a very good dog movie, and therefore the dog was really happy watching it. Uh, but yeah, this gives it's us a a very glimpse, good dog. Who's a good boy? A glimpse into the brain and the perception of dogs, like how they see the world around them and how, like, action to them is more important. And I can imagine it comes down from like hunting things where like movement and action is more important for them than the identity of all bushes and trees around them um so that's uh, yeah an idea of how the brain works for, in dogs but it's still like yeah we need more dogs watching movies in mri machines to <laughs> fully understand how they see the world um, do,
0: do we though <laughs> do we need more dogs watching movies <laughs> in mri machines <laughs>
1: yeah i don't know um hey,
0: ignoble ignoble prize people i hope you're listening to this
1: <laughs> it seems like it seems like a runner runner up for like one of the next year's uh ignoble prizes so yeah that's that's all my facts today i think with that And
0: that is the show for today if you want to reach out to us you can find us on facebook or instagram there you can talk to me it's at plants and pipettes
1: on twitter you can talk to me that's at plants pipettes.
0: We have a website. It's www.plantsandpipettes.com where we have different blog posts about different topics in the world of plant science. And as
1: always... Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Thank you for listening and, good and bye. goodbye. And goodbye.